I arrived here in the early hours of this morning to find a city in the grip of terror and death. Making my way through the normally deserted streets by the light of the full moon, I encountered groups of mourners on every corner and in every square. The houses, normally silent at dark at that hour, were alight with lamps and alive with movement, and everywhere the sound of wailing. In a city already reeling from the effects of a series of recent environmental disasters, this feels like the final deadly stroke of fate. The latest rumours are that Pharaoh's family has not been spared, and that his eldest son is also among the dead. I spoke to one Egyptian who didn't want to give his name. The Hebrews are leaving, he told me. Their God has killed our children. Pharaoh is nowhere to be seen, and our gods have deserted us. Israel is finished. Now the sun is coming up, and I'm standing by the main highway that leads from the city out to the wilderness. Already the highway is full of people streaming out of the Hebrew quarters of the city. Young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, donkeys piled high with possession. A vast human column heading slowly but purposefully out of the city that has been their home for nearly 20 generations. 24 hours ago, they were slaves. Now... They are free. For as long as anyone can remember, Israel's economy has depended on them. Now the locals can't wait for them to go. This will be a night for the Israelites to remember for many years to come. But I suspect it's one night that Egypt would rather forget. This is John Simpson, BBC News, in Suez. The world's press weren't there. But I wonder what they would have made of these very strange events. They were there on another occasion, when a doughty old champion of democracy stepped blinking into the sunshine on the afternoon of February the 11th, 1990, after spending 27 years in detention under the apartheid re regime of South Africa. And as, as Nelson Mandela began his slow walk to freedom out of Victor Vesta prison, the world was watching. Some years later, the independent newspaper described it as a day that shook the world. Now, I don't want to take away from the importance of Mandela on the world stage. His subsequent period of history as the president of South Africa, who, fought, who oversaw a, a non-bloody revolution, which turned the country from a divided nation 
into a relatively peaceful, multiracial one. But I want to suggest to you today, dear friends, brothers and sisters, that that was not the day that shook the world. But that the world was defined and shaped and changed forever by the events of that strange, magical Passover night. But did you notice something very strange about the reading? It was long, wasn't it? Very long and very detailed. In fact, I suspect some of you were looking at the book and thinking, are we in the right book? All these previous weeks we've been building up plague upon plague, boils, hail, disease amongst cattle, locusts. And we knew that the death of the firstborn was coming because way back in Exodus chapter 4, God had announced through Moses that Israel is my firstborn son. And if you will not let him go, I will kill your firstborn sons. And we've been waiting for the blow to strike. The tension is building. And then you get to chapter 12, and it all fades away. And we have a long and detailed description of how to eat the Passover lamb. Make sure there's no yeast in the bread. Make sure there's enough to go round. Make sure you eat it standing up with your belt tied around your waist and your staff in your hand. Sounds like the sort of meal that you or I would eat in an airport restaurant. One eye on the uh, departure board and an ear for when the boarding gate is going to be open. You're eating the meal, but you're really not relaxed. So what's going on here? Why does the author, why does Moses deliberately slow down this narrative and spend so long not talking about the events of that night, but how the Passover is going to be celebrated from then on? Do you notice that? You have to hunt around to actually find any narrative in the passage we read. You find it towards the end of, um, for halfway through chapter 12, verse 29, where it says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And that's just about it, as far as the narrative is concerned. So what is going on? Why this deliberate slowing down of the narrative? Why are we treated to ritual rather than a cracking story about how God gave a bloody nose to the Egyptians and sent the Israelites out having got all, those, all the back pay for those years of hard labor? The reason is because Moses is describing for us a world-defining event. And it's very, very important that the people who are there at the time remember the details of this event and remember to celebrate it every year from thereafter because this event is shaping who they are. There are two re real issues here in this chapter that I want to draw out for you today. There are a lot of other issues, but there's a lot of detail. But there are two real issues that I want us to talk about. Am I going the right way? That's it. And the two words are the issue of identity and the issue of ownership. 
the issue of identity and the issue of ownership. Because the events of that faithful night not only shaped the identity of the Israelites, but have shaped the history of the world ever since. Let me explain. What would have happened if God had not passed over Egypt that night and spared his people? What if they hadn't put the blood on the door? What would have been the subsequent history of the Israelite nation? Well, they would have remained slaves. It's very likely that eventually they would have just been subsumed into a greater Egyptian nation. And they would have disappeared from the pages of history. There are so many ancient civilizations that have come and gone, and we know so little about them. The Israelites would have been one of those. A, a little post-it note, a postscript, on the pages of history. There would have been no promised land. There would have been no prophets talking about the day when there would be another exodus and a greater return, when God would make a highway in the desert and bring his people back from exile and bring them into a good land and into greater blessings than they'd ever seen before. There would be no prophet, prophetic promises. There would be no promise of Messiah. There would be no birth in Bethlehem. There would be no Christmas story. There would be God, no good news, no gospel. Without the Passover. And that's why I say that the events of that night were not only a defining moment for the Israelites and defined their identity for all time, but it was a world-defining moment. Look. We are all here this morning because of the Passover. It's as significant as that. So no wonder the narrative slows down so that we can take time to see how important the details are because every detail of that feast has something to teach the Israelites and us about who God is and how he works. The unleavened bread, of which there are many, many mentions, and we'll come back to it later. This is so important. They must not eat any bread with yeast in it. This theme is picked up, we'll see in a moment, in the New Testament, to talk about the inner character of God's people. The lamb had to be eaten inside the house so that they were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. The lamb had to be perfect. All the details mattered. And not only that night, but that this was to give um, way to a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for seven days, get it? Yeah, you know, you've guessed it. They had to eat unleavened bread. And then there's the issue of the, the consecration of the firstborn. The firstborn representing the hopes of the family and of the nation. The firstborn of Pharaoh was the one who was going to give birth to the next pharaoh. He was more important than the current pharaoh. The future lay in him. And for the Israelites, the firstborn was the favoured son. And the firstborn belonged to God. And of course, the one who chooses the best owns the rest. And by saving the firstborn of the Israelites, God lays his claim 
on all of the Israelites. So the slide in front of you there will sum up for you the events of these chapters. Yahweh, the God of Israel, sworn by covenant to Abraham centuries before that he would do this, sets the Hebrews free from slavery and claims him, claims them as his people. So as I said, the, one of the key issues here today we need to look at is the issue of identity. Now, am I speaking to anybody here who has ever suffered an identity crisis? It's a peculiarly Western thing. So those of you who are not Western, you may want to just be patient for a while while I explain this to you. It's a peculiar thing. Westerners, more than anyone else, seem to suffer from identity crises. What is it like to have an identity crisis? Well, basically, you ask the question, you go around, you're tormented with the question, who am I? Who am I? I had a conversation not two weeks ago, with a very dear friend and a very godly Christian man. And during that conversation, he said to me, I don't know who I am. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Is that something you can identify with? But for the Westerner, an identity crisis is really not an issue about who, who am I, who is my name, what is my name, and where is my family, but what am I worth? What does my life mean? What value do I have? And when in the West we ask a question about what are we worth, we're usually asking the question about what have we achieved? So a question about identity is nearly always a question about achievement. How am I doing? What does my life add up to? What am I worth? Who am I really? Now, most of you here in this room are too young to have a crisis like that in your mid-years. Some of us, sadly, are too old. But that kind of identity crisis is very, very common. And I think there are some pointers here in what God did with the Israelites that night at Passover as to a key to understanding how to escape from that kind of spiral where we wonder who we are and whether our life really counts. If you notice, in the account that we read in Exodus 12, I think it's in verse 41, you may want to just look at it with me. It says, at the end of 430 years, from the correct version, otherwise I'll confuse you. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Well, I thought they were slaves, families, groups of dispossessed, poor, oppressed people. So where have the divisions come from? Well, you see, this is what has happened to the Israelites as a result of God's redeeming them from slavery. They are not simply slaves made free. They're soldiers now. They're an army. Okay, they may not be much of an army. They may be no match for Pharaoh, 
but something has radically changed to them because God has saved them. God has taken them out of Egypt. He's released them from the clutches of Pharaoh. He's taken away the years and years of economic and psychological oppression, and something else has happened. They are God's people now, and they're on the march. And they are ready to fight. Weak made strong in the Saviour's love. It's quite interesting, you may uh, may be trying to work out how many people actually left the land of Egypt. I think most versions say something like 600,000 men plus women and children. So you think, ooh, around 2 million. And a lot of people think there's no way that so many people could have survived in the wilderness. Well, there may be a clue to the answer here on the lines of what I said to you now, because the word translated thousands in most Bibles can equally be translated squadron. A unit of military force. It's a reference again to the fact that the people who left Egypt were very different from the people who entered Egypt 400 years before. They're strong. They're free. And they're heading for home. There's been a radical change in their identity. I sometimes hear Christians use a phrase, I I fear it's become a cliché. They say, well, we need to find our identity in Christ. Have you heard that phrase? Have you used that phrase? What does it mean? What on earth does it mean? I think there's a clue to what we need to do to get out of the identity crisis spiral. In the words of the Apostle Paul, if you have a Bible, you you may wish... To turn to them, you'll find them in his first letter to the Corinthians and chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4, I'll give you a page reference if you like. Page 1146. Paul is here talking about how he compares to other apostles and missionaries. Not everybody was impressed by the Apostle Paul. Some people thought that when you compared him to some of the local men, he wasn't very impressive. He wasn't particularly good in front of a microphone. He didn't have much of a magnetic personality. And he he talks about this whole problem of what happens when you're compared to other people and you don't come out of it very, very well. Notice what he says in verse 4 of the chapter. He says, well, uh, verse 3, sorry. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Notice he doesn't simply say, I don't really care what other people think. I'm my own man. He says, I'm not worried about other people's evaluation of me, and I'm not even worried about my own. You see, here's the clue. A person caught in an identity crisis is hooked on their own evaluation of their life. What am I worth? Meaning, what am I worth to me? What am I worth in my eyes? And the secret here, Paul, as to how the gospel has changed the way he sees his identity... He says, you know what? 
I may have an opinion about me. I, other people may have opinions about me. I don't worry about them. I may have an opinion about me. I'm not even worried about that. There's only one opinion that I'm going to listen to, and that's the Lord's opinion. He's the judge. Well, I may have doubts about my competence, but I'm not going to listen to those doubts because it may be they're true, but the Lord judges. The Israelites didn't escape from Egypt on the basis of any achievement or value of their own. Look at the incident very carefully. What was the one difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians? The one key difference. It wasn't race, it wasn't colour, it wasn't creed, because the Israelites were pretty submerged in, Israel, in Egyptian religion. You'll find that out afterwards. No, 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 the, the Egyptians and Israelites look very much like each other. They probably spoke like each other, and yes, of course, they walked like the Egyptians too. But the point was, there was no difference in terms of their outward achievements, or even their character, as we see in the subsequent story. So what's the difference? The one and only difference is the blood. That's the only difference. Having been given the instructions, the Israelites carry them out faithfully, and as a result of that alone, God passes over them. The point being that if they hadn't put the blood on the door, their firstborn would have died as well. Because from God's point of view, there is no moral distinction between them. Just as there's no moral distinction between us. So what makes the new identity that turns these former slaves into pilgrims and soldiers and people with a future is the action of God. God's mercy. God's kindness in overlooking their sins and overlooking their many defects and acting on the basis of his mercy in the sight of the shed blood. But there's another reason, too, why the, the, the author here spends so much time on describing this Passover feast. It's so that subsequent generations can be part of the story. Every year, around November the 11th in this country, we have Remembrance Day. You'll see the poppies very soon appearing on people's lapels. And there are three words that sum up what Remembrance Day is all about. And you've seen those three words engraved on war memorials all over the country. Lest we forget. The difference is, when it comes to Remembrance Day, we're not looking forward to the next war. We're hoping there aren't going to be any more. But with Passover, it's different. Each time the Passover is celebrated, each subsequent generation enters into it and relives it. And as they relive it, it feeds their hope for the future. Which is why the New Testament picks up the Passover theme, and we shall see shortly in the Lord's Supper, 
transposes that theme, changes it slightly, refocuses it, and then looks again to the future. You know, it's really interesting that even today, when Jews celebrate Passover together, they put themselves in the shoes of the Israelites on that first night. Listen to some of the, the instructions given uh, at the Seder of the Pesach, the Passover. They say this amongst the many prayers. This is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Whoever is hungry, let him come and eat. Whoever is in need, let him come in and conduct the Seder of Passover. This year, we are slaves. Next year, we will be free people. Do you see that? We are slaves. So the, the Jew of today can still identify with the story. The Passover is for now. I am in the story. That story changes who I am. It defines who I am. A blood-bought, redeemed son of the living God. That's my identity. And it doesn't matter what other people say, and it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what God says. And in the blood splashed on the doorpost, God, in effect, writes a bill that says, I accept you. I take you as my own. I adopt you as my firstborn. Don't listen to what other people say about yourself. It's about you. Don't even listen to what you say about you. Listen to my word of forgiveness. Listen to my word of acceptance. I have adopted you. I said that identity is very often an issue of value. Do you know the value of something is the price that you put on it. I used to greet um, one of my many reincarnations. I worked in the motor trade and uh, occasionally I would have people coming to me with car they bought, paid a lot of money for, maybe 30, 40,000 pounds. And they'd had the car for a couple of years on higher purchase, of course. They couldn't afford to buy it. They wanted to show off, but they couldn't afford the cash. And now they wanted to sell it. And they hadn't driven very much in it. There were only a few thousand miles on the clock. So they thought, well, I paid 40,000 for it. It's probably worth 36 or more. So they put the value on it, you see, on the basis of what it means to them. And unfortunately, they come to me or to someone like me and we tell them, well, it's worth about 28 at the moment. And the bad news is they still owe 38 on the higher purchase. And then the conversation goes something like this, but it's worth so much more. To which the answer always comes, it's worth what people will pay. The value of something is the price you can get. And the value of the Israelites is the price that God put on their heads that night. And I don't know if you've noticed this, there was a price to pay. It wasn't just the little Balaams that died. The Egyptians died too. And I want you to remember that. Whilst there's no sense in which the death of the Egyptians uh, atoned for the sins of the, the Israelites, it doesn't work like that. But there was a real loss that night. The Bible tells us that God gets no pleasure from the death of the wicked. It doesn't please him when people go in the other direction and won't listen to him. It brings God no pleasure to bring the judgment on a person 
for their sins, however deserved, however many chances they've had and blown. And there is a real cost to the just and righteous heart of God when people turn away. Let's remember that. Don't just write the Egyptians out of the story because they're the baddies. Our identity is worth the price that Christ puts on our heads. And the price is the value of his own infinite merit poured out, offered up, blamelessly and without blemish for us. That is our identity. That is our value. And that is all the achievement that you will ever need to get you through this difficult and trying life. Whatever the voices out there say, whatever the voices in here say, listen to the voice that speaks from the place where the blood is shed. Listen to the voice of the blood shed on Calvary. It is finished, completed, paid for. The price on your head the price on the head of all who belong to Jesus Christ indicates our value in the sight of God. A value brought not out of our achievements, not out of our accomplishments, but out of the beauty and perfection of God's own Son. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, as Christians, it should be a reenactment of that original transaction, as if we were there on Calvary. What's that song we sing about the, the mocking of the crowds? Uh, Calvary, uh, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. I was there. Is that how you see the death of Jesus Christ? I could have been there in the crowds. I should have been there on the cross. There should have been three guilty people there that day and not Christ. And in a very real sense, I was there. And every time I celebrate the death of Jesus Christ for me, it's as if it happens all over again. I'm in the story. This is not history or archaeology or the past. This is the living present. And again, saying again in the Passover festival, today the head of the house will say, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord our God took us from there. The rabbis say this, that in every generation a person is obligated to regard himself as if he had come out of Egypt. Is that how you see the death of Jesus Christ? And when you're troubled by who you are, or you don't like what you see in the mirror, whose voice calls out the loudest? Is it the estimation of others? Your own value you put on yourself? Or is it the voice of acceptance? that comes from Calvary. What we discover in the Passover is that once and for all, 
the true nature of our identity is established, not in us, but in the sovereign mercy of God. Our only value, but it is all our value, is that he paid the highest price he could for us. You know, God could have redeemed us on the cheap. He could have done. He, because he could have just wanted drones, servants, slaves. He could have done a cheaper deal. But he wanted royal sons and daughters. People who could share his rule and reign. People who could share his righteousness and holiness. Children who could share his DNA. And so he paid the highest price he could. And the God who paid a price on that fateful night in the judgment of the Egyptians paid an even higher price some 1,500 years later on a lonely hill outside Jerusalem. That is our value, brothers and sisters and dear friends. If you're ever asking yourself the question, who am I and what does my life amount to? The answer is at Calvary. And as the Apostle Paul said, you may not be innocent. You may not add up to much, but don't listen to the voice from others who tell you that and don't listen to your own estimation. Listen to the voice of Calvary. So the issue of identity is really, really important and it's settled here at Passover. But the other one is the issue of ownership. Do you notice um, all that description of the, the firstborn son The firstborn becomes the possession of Yahweh. Once redeemed and saved from destruction, the rest of his life has to be given over to God. Well, of course, if you happen to have been born an animal, that wasn't particularly good news for you, because to be dedicated to the service of God meant that you were going to end up on a sacrificial altar. But the God of Israel did not approve of child sacrifice. And so every firstborn son had a price paid to be ransomed, to be redeemed. The animal would be shed, would be killed in its, his place, and a payment would be made. And so the firstborn would not be released, but would be saved in order to serve Yahweh with his life rather than with his death. And at Passover, what we see happening is not only God giving his people a new identity, but staking his claim on the whole of their lives. Remember what I said, the God who takes the best owns the rest. In taking the firstborn Israelites, he claims the whole of Israel. And in redeeming us, he claims the whole of our lives too. The whole of the New Testament is Passover shaped. Paul, when he's trying to get the Corinthians basically to clean up their lives because their sexual habits are fairly appalling, but they're very similar to 
the nation they live amongst. Rather like the, the uh, Israelites many, many years before. God found it wasn't all that difficult to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It was a much tougher proposition to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And similarly with the Corinthian church. They were living in a, a capital city in Greece that was renowned for debauchery. And that was the kind of standard that was beginning to affect members of the Corinthian church. And it leads Paul to say this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. That is the language of Passover. He is speaking to firstborn sons. You have been redeemed. You belong to God. It's not your agenda anymore. And I would suggest, if you really are one of these people who doesn't like yourself very much, that you put that verse on every mirror in your house. Those words, you are not your own. You may not like what you see, but you're not the owner of what you see. God is. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And then to the same people, this time, the issue is, would you believe, incest. Now, this is Corinth, not Norfolk. Um, but he, he notices that their attitude towards this behaviour is one of complacency. They, they think it's quite all right, really. And they're, they're rather proud of the fact that they're free-thinking people. And don't get all uptight about a little bit of, you know, hanky-panky. Keep it in the family. And this is what Paul says, you're boasting. It's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast. We're back in Exodus 12 and 13, aren't we? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. You see what he's doing? He's appealing to their new identity. He says, you're not the old people you were anymore. You're not slaves anymore. I set you free. Remember? Remember Calvary? Does that not mean anything to you? You had your own Passover night when I passed over your life and I saw the blood of Jesus Christ laid to your account and I let you go and I made you mine. So why are you going back? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's talking about lifestyle here. He's not talking about ritual. He's saying, if Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us, we must remain for the rest of our lives eating the unleavened bread of true sincerity, truth, and purity. And again, there's a passage read out to us earlier this morning. You know, this is Peter speaking here again, talking about the value of what it is to be in the kingdom of heaven. What is value it is to be a child of God? He says, it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Who are you? And who do you belong to? On that Passover night, Something happened to those Israelites, and most of them hadn't got a clue what it meant. 
They just went along with the crowd. God saved the whole nation and he took the whole nation. But many, many of those individuals were just there for the ride and it became very, very clear when they got out into the wilderness and they had to face the uh, scorpions and the snakes and the, the thirst and the hunger that they were really still back in Egypt. And it's not surprising. They'd lived there for 400 years. Nobody could remember any other home. And the values of Egypt were still there. So when it got tough, and they dug inside themselves for the resources, what did they find? The old habits, the old ways of life, the old attitudes. When life gets tough for you, and you dig down deep to find the resources to cope, what comes up? Is it the remnants of the old Egypt? Is it? You find when life gets hard and you can't see an easy way out or you're struggling or you're frustrated or you're fearful, what comes up? What floats up to the surface? Is it the old Egypt? Is it the old habits? Who do you belong to? Who owns you? You know, um, one thing it's very easy to overlook with a Passover it's a long, long time ago, happened in a very different culture from our own, in a very different land. And it could sound like something rather strange and impersonal. But one of the messages you get from the Passover, you look at it very carefully, is that God got very close not only to the, Egypt, Egypt, uh, Egypt, um, the Israelites that night, but also to the Egyptians. This was no long-range strike. God was personally there. He says, I will pass over, and I will strike the firstborn. It's a sobering thought that even to be under the judgment of God is a deeply personal and intimate experience. God is not far from any of us, either for salvation or for judgment. God wanted to judge the Egyptians. He didn't send an angel to carry out the dirty work. He came himself. And when he came to save, he came himself. That's the message of Passover. It's the message of Calvary. You're not dealing with a long-range God. You're dealing with a God who's up close. God of justice, mercy, and love, we heard last week. God of infinite patience. And a God who yearns for intimacy with his people. And he yearns for intimacy with the guilty, too. You're one of those sort of people who maybe falls into the trap of being more in Egypt than in Israel. Well, God wants to be on intimate terms with you as well. He isn't going to leave you alone lightly. He will pursue you. He will not let you go. And if at the end you harden your heart, it will be with deep sorrow that he would deliver you to your just punishment. It's a sobering thought that that same God pursues you, not for judgment, but for mercy. Who are you? What is your life really worth? And who owns your plans 
your agendas and your life.